electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer has the morning off. Stocks do look to give back much of Wednesday's gains as this latest round of talks between Russia and Ukraine go nowhere. And February CPI, although no worse than expectations, is still the hottest annual rate since 82, hottest monthly rate since October. Our roadmap begins with the ongoing headwinds for investors and consumers. Inflation hitting that new four-decade high at 7.9, surging energy costs, pushing prices even higher. Plus, there's no deal. It was the first in-person negotiations between Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers, but it did not end with a breakthrough. We're going to get a live update from Ukraine. And the Amazon split. Shares popping ahead of the open after the company announced a $10 billion buyback and a 20-for-1 for one stock split. That is its first split in more than 20 years. We're going to start with the market volatility, obviously, the Russian-Ukraine conflict and U.S. inflation, the big eco-data print of the week. Silver linings here, guys, maybe uh, used cars and trucks down two-tenths sequentially, but look at the three-month annual rate, 8.4 and 6.8 is hotter than the, the year-on-year. Hotter than year on the year-on-year, hotter than we thought a few months ago. And it's interesting because uh, the one thing we were looking for in, in the early part of, of this year is used cars inflecting lower uh, and a lot of those sort of core measures that were very pandemic inflected. I, I think that right now the market views the inflation picture and Ukraine as just mutually exacerbating, essentially, um, and, and it will, for what it means from the Fed. Uh, Obviously, the market is incredibly sensitive to any Ukraine headlines, de-escalation, re-escalation, incremental sanctions, not incremental sanctions. But that's only because the economic effects of the Ukraine crisis feed directly into the fears that we've been living with uh, for a while right now, which is a slow a slowdown in the economy with a tightening Fed and inflation that's, that's stubborn. That being said, S&P is now on pace to give back almost exactly half of what was gained yesterday. It's this very consistent pattern, illiquidity, big jumpy moves, market trying to suggest maybe that there's uh, the prospect of, uh, of support in this area uh, on the S&P 4100 to 4300. It's not about corporate stuff. It's really about um, you know, the risk reward after you've had a you know, six, seven week correction, David. And, 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 you know, we were talking about it yesterday. All the investment banks are out with hedge funds have massively taken their risk levels down. Yes. They've had a purge. We've had a liquidation. Now what? Yeah, I was talking about that yesterday. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, because those numbers are pretty shocking. Again, I don't share a lot of them because the, in the accuracy is a bit in question, but not the direction when it comes to many funds. But, yeah, they have taken the risk down. Mike, uh, we talked about this a bit yesterday, but we still have great volatility every single day. Yeah. And, you know, I go to you and we sort of ha- whether we can expect to sort of put in a bottom when we have this kind of volatility overall. I would also then there's just so much coming at investors right now um, in terms of trying to understand not just what is going on. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, continues to in Ukraine, but what the impact will be on 
the economy in Europe, uh, whether or not a real recession is very possible yeah. there, what the impact will then be in the world economy and overall GDP, let's not forget. Uh, the European Union and its buying power is pretty significant. Uh, and so I, there's just a lot of things to digest. Meanwhile, none of this stuff seems to show up in the bond market. Well, not very much. Well, I mean, maybe not in the way you'd expect, thank at you. least. Yeah. That's, that's um, probably the better way to look, put yeah, it. Look, yeah. I mean, first of all, the European Central Bank surprise this morning was a much more hawkish statement. Going to end QE more quickly than they thought. Maybe the, the rate hikes are, are more in sight. So, in other words, moving away from the direction of trying to be more accommodated, given the slowdown, they have a single mandate, which is inflation. They and do. It's not cooperating. I, I know, but I mean, energy prices in Europe. Yeah. What are we going? To, what are they going to be potentially looking at as this uh, year continues? Given their desire, at least, to wean themselves off of of energy products from Russia to a certain extent, at least as much as two thirds over the next year. We've talked about it oftentimes. Those, those kinds of increases are hard to digest. I mean, yeah. you know, we think it's bad here. It's nothing compared to what they're dealing with. Right. And so the growth effects of that are more, probably more crucial to, you know, to, to the outlook for uh, economies globally, for companies, than the inflation statistics that it's going to result in. So I don't know. Um, look, I, I still think that uh, we've, we've priced in a lot. We don't know if we priced in at all. That's always the way it looks. And we talk about the volatility. It's very illiquid, you know, twitchy market. Um, I always think about it as wide range of outcomes on the table, geopolitically, economically, Fed policy-wise, with a wide range of outcomes. Anyone's conviction level at a given price is very low. The market has to move price really far to find people with, who think there's a good risk reward. That's, to me, the explanation for day-to-day jumpiness. Yeah. Uh, J.P. Morgan this morning points out, uh, I mean, they, they still believe net-net that the risk reward is to the upside yeah. rather than the downside. But they also say, you look at prior rounds of failed talks, and we've had four rounds now, um, when they've gone nowhere, it has resulted in, in, in a, a new uh, Russian offensive. And if that pattern holds, perhaps we do set up uh, for a leg lower. Uh, obviously, everyone's trying to work with workarounds, trying to increase domestic energy production, which actually was a big topic at Sarah Week uh, earlier in the week as the energy secretary basically addressed uh, oil CEOs around the country. Take a listen. We are on war footing. We are in an emergency. And we have to responsibly increase short-term supply where we can right now to stabilize the market and to minimize harm to American families. I hope your investors are saying these words to you as well. In this moment of crisis, we need more supply. Right now, we need oil and gas production to rise to meet current demand. Maybe the most overt comment we've had uh, regarding uh, oil companies and their investors who have come to expect certain things. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's, it's, you know, it's a tough puzzle because, of course, there's a lead time to, to investing more and turning back on some production. Uh, so you're talking about months. So implicitly, there's a bet that these prices or something near it are, you know, are, are where they will remain. Um, you know, you had some, I saw some work today saying, you know, OPEC's going to be motivated to some degree. And, and there's, there's actually some likelihood that by the second half of 2022, it gets crude back down to 85. Now, is 85 enough to kind of clear the hurdle rates for a lot of domestic producers if they're confident in that level? So I think that it's moving in that direction. U.S. production is higher than it's been in, in history, except yes. for a few months in 2019. Right. It's not like we're not pumping it. Um, and OPEC's a couple million barrels a day below peak production, right? So it's not like 
It's the whole swing factor in the world is whether the U.S. does it. But I do think the messaging is, is, is you know, getting more urgent for that reason that, you know, we want to, seem to be seen to be doing something about the price. It does take you back to Russia as well and, and whether or not the world is going to be somewhat successful in limiting their ability to sell and yeah. actually produce. Uh, you know, a number of people do believe that they're going to need foreign investment in technology to keep a portion of the industry going. Don't forget ExxonMobil, of course, that decision last week to exit the Sockland projects where they've been for many, many years running it. They have a number of partners there, but it's very much unclear whether the Russians are going to be able to do that as all these oil companies choose to basically leave the country. Uh, Shell operates on a neighboring project as well. Um, and so, you know, there is a question as to whether some of those assets in Russia will go, go into sort of a permanent decline, affecting their ability to produce in general. It's the key part of their economy. Um, and I think, you know, we can't forget what's going on with the Russian economy. Not that it's a huge part of the yeah. world economy, but of course it's part of this story. It's the key part of the story. There's a stranglehold on that economy at this yeah. point. Uh, you know, I don't know if you can say collapsing. I don't know if, what, when, when and if we'll really start to see signs of it on the street, so to speak. But the ruble has collapsed. Uh, virtually every corporation based in the United States has taken some action to exit. Uh, and their oil production may be in some jeopardy, at least as time goes on. So, you know, that's an important part of the story to watch as well in terms of the pressure that may be brought to bear if any, is really felt by President Putin. It was uh, BCA research I was trying to think of with this energy call. They actually went from overweight energy uh, stocks to a neutral. And their point is here uh, that they expect an increase in the oil supply by U.S. shale producers, Saudi Arabia and Gulf states, which will bring Brent back down to 85 by the second half of 2022. So, you know, supply and demand haven't been repealed. It's just a matter of when it, it, it comes into line in terms of supply and, you know, that's probably a, a really bullish call for the overall economy and markets if it happens, because that 85 most can live with anyway. Uh, either certainly side of it, the backside you know. of the curve would suggest for the latter That's half exactly of the year. That's exactly right. So you have a $30 premium in here. If a $30 premium, if we weren't already worried about scarcity, supply chain, uh, inflationary inputs, pandemic reopening, and all that stuff, and we, were already, we weren't already at 80 and then we, before adding the 30 bucks, if we were at 40 and went to 30 and Ukraine was the only thing in the world to worry about, the stock market wouldn't be doing what it's doing right now. So it's just the compounding effect of all of it. Right. Uh, for more this morning on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, let's get to NBC News correspondent Ali Aruzi, who's on the ground in Ukraine. Hi there. Yeah, so the, the Russians and the Ukrainians had their first high-level talks today just outside Anatolia in uh, Turkey, and the Ukrainian foreign minister said that his expectations were low going into those meetings and those expectations were met. He said that there was no progress made in achieving a ceasefire with his uh, Russian counterpart, uh, Sergei Lavrov. Uh, they talked about opening humanitarian corridors, which just haven't been achieved. They said that one of the problems that they've been having is uh, coming to some sort of resolution on how to use which corridors. The Ukrainians said that the Russians had offered corridors into Belarus and into Russia, and the Ukrainians are saying that those are just simply unacceptable. And as the situation continues to get much worse there, Mariupol is a city under siege right now. The Ukrainian authorities 
are saying that 400,000 people are essentially being kept hostage in Mariupol. There's no way in uh, and there's no way out. And those talks were trying to open up those corridors and they just simply didn't. They had one humanitarian corridor open up in Rumi and that was the only place uh, evacuations were made. So the, the talks didn't really bear much fruit. The Ukrainian foreign minister didn't think they were going to. Uh, and it's just going to be more hardship right now. The Ukrainians said in those talks that the, they were open to all diplomacy with the Russians, but they were also willing to fight. And that was an indication that the Russians are going to press on on their invasion of Kiev. So the talks were somewhat futile. They did have to take place to see if there was any room to bring about some peace to the people in these besieged towns. But for now, they're still going to be living without power, without electricity, without water until some sort of corridor can be achieved from them. But uh, unfortunately, the talks today didn't achieve that. OK, uh, thank you. I want to move on now as well to uh, Amazon which is rising in the pre-market after its board approved a 24 one stock split and a $10 billion share repurchase plan. That split is similar to the one announced last month by Google's parent Alphabet. Amazon, it's only up about 4,300% since it last split the stock back in 1999. But uh, investors can look at it. Uh, you know, you still got a relatively new CEO there, Andy Jassy. Um, and it does appear, A, that they have confidence in the business. A $10 billion buyback on a market cap like this, percentage-wise, not that large, but nonetheless, it is there. They, were, they bought back stock for the first time, remember, uh, in January, I think it was, in many years. Yeah. And obviously, that would appear that it's going to be uh, something that they continue to do. And even more so, uh, Mike, you could say, well, he probably cares about the stock price, which yeah. is never a, a certainty when Mr. Bezos was uh, CEO. Definitely one takeaway from it. Um, cares about the stock price, making this gesture. Once, once Alphabet went for the split, it was kind of, you know, this fashion of, of, of sporting these four digits share price. And it is fashion on some level. I mean, it used to be that nobody wanted a super high share price. Um, the split has some very minor functional advantages for, you know, reducing the size of a single options contract and things like that uh, and making it liquid. But when Google run by these hyper-rational math people who used to embed mathematical jokes in their, you know, buyback quantities and things like that, uh, when they say, fine, we're going to do a split, it seems like everyone wants to do it. And to the point of the new CEO, I was talking about this on Closing Bell last night, there's some perhaps advantage in just rebasing the stock at a different number. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a psychological, and, and I went back to Tim Cook, he comes in in 2011, stock raced higher into the iPhone launch in 2012, but it was considered to be Steve Jobs' product. And right. then the stock wallowed for like two or three years, and that number, $700 was the peak price, was hanging over the company. You do a 7 for 1 stock split, and 100 your goal for the high, and it's sort of, nobody knows the math. And, uh, David, yeah. Larry Culp, GE, reverse split, right? right? Just change the number. Right. So nobody's saying, you know what, it was 60 bucks in 1999. It's true. No, so, you, it, it can change the conversation the way you think about here, things. But it's, but it's part of it. And we always should make the point. It has absolutely no real impact right. on the fundamentals of the company. Uh, you're simply not going to Though for signaling purposes, historically, you wouldn't do it if you felt like your stock was going to then get cut in half. And so over long periods of time, companies that split their stock, it means the management's a little more confident than average. Tesla yeah. did move up sharply after that split, didn't it? Or oh, yeah. I, yeah. After the split and then soon after, the um, they got the S&P inclusion. Yeah. Well, Wells today says uh, they think 
because of this, it's a sign that investment intensity is downshifting to a more sustainable pace after obviously spending a fortune to a fill the COVID need and work yeah. on ultra-fast delivery. Uh, when we come back, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, uh, we'll talk more about it in the energy sector rally. Chevron up 25 in less than a month. We're going to look what's ahead for oil stocks. Take a look at futures here as we're coming off the sixth 2% move up or down for the S&P of the year. Last year, we did seven for the entire year. Or squawk on the street in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Let's take a look at the energy sector, up double digits since the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, actually very strong even before that. Joining us with his take on the oil stocks rally is Truist Managing Director of Energy Research, Neil Dingman. Uh, Neil, good morning. Uh, good to have you this morning. You, you characterize uh, the oil, you characterize the, the crude market as having an incredibly high geopolitical risk premium embedded in the price. Uh, and what does that mean? for uh, what companies might do in response. If they view it as just a geopolitical risk premium, uh, are they going to produce with the assumption that these prices are going to stick around uh, or not? No, I don't think so. I think you, you or David said it earlier, the time needed, and, and, and to, I, I disagree with one of those earlier estimates, one of your other, I guess you had quoted, that if you wanted to produce today, one of my big CEOs said if they wanted to produce today, one by if they started tomorrow, maybe they could add an incremental 5% by the end of the year. The problem right now is personnel, drill pipe, drilling rigs, frack equipment, you name it across the board, it's already tight. Uh, plus just these companies are gonna continue their, their capital discipline. So I see highly unlikely that many of these US companies are gonna respond to this. So if they're going to maintain this capital discipline, um, but they're, they're also having their cash flows inflated by the higher prices, uh, doesn't that mean that are they just going to accelerate their pay down of debt and, and, their, and their buybacks? Or, you know, incrementally, is there, is there more to go around and they can also fund further production? Well, that, that, that's the thing. We wrote something just a day or two ago favoring five or six names that still have delevering to go because they can actually, I mean, you, you've talked about Oxy a lot. If Oxy, if you run the strip at Oxy today, the company could potentially do $3 billion just in the first quarter in free cash flow if you run today's strip. That's obviously not what I'm running in our models. 
But whereas, you know, call it 75% of the other companies I cover are already at about a one times leverage. So to your point, they'll just end up paying out that much more. Either they'll buy back a quarter of their company or they'll just pay that much more out of dividends. Yeah, I mean, we had that conversation last week with Darren Woods at Exxon, Mike Worth at Chevron. I mean, that's the big question right now. What's the number going to be for 2022 and how much are these companies going to buy back? Are they going to, though, put more towards production as well? Or is most of the excess going to simply go towards uh, return of capital? Well, David, you mentioned, you know, Darren Woods, it's interesting that Chevron, Exxon, Conoco all said we're going to try to grow the Permian at least 20 percent really to make up for some parts of their other portfolio. Oh, t- total, they're still not talking about a lot of growth overall for each of those companies, but those three really stood out. The rest of my companies, I mean, you've talked to Scott Sheffield, you've talked to all these others at Pioneer and others, they'll be lucky to grow 5% for a number of reasons. And so, you know, again, I just think if a guy wanted to turn it on tomorrow, it would be darn near impossible to do so. So I think that, you know, thinking that you're going to get more than a million or a million and a half barrels incremental from the U.S. this year, I think is absolutely wrong. And so those names that you were highlighting, where they were already kind of uh, actively deleveraging the balance sheets, are which ones? Um, Oxy, Continental Resource, of course, with uh, famous Harold Hamm there. Uh, one's not as well known, like Oventa Resources, uh, small one, Callum Petroleum. So there's, there's there's a number like that that, you know, they're just going to hit their deleveraging target likely by the end of this year instead of maybe by the end of 2023. Yeah, uh, kind of getting uh, getting bailed out uh, by events in a sense. Neil, thank you very right. much. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Take a look at futures here. Obviously, uh, some things working against the bulls, not just the failed round of uh, talks, but uh, the hot, uh, re- the relatively hot CPI, at least month on month, as we said earlier, the hottest monthly rate in uh, a few months since October. More Squawk on the Street continues in just a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Coming off the best day for the Nasdaq since uh, March of 21. Uh, take a look at some of the laggards, though, that are going to lead us uh, a little bit lower here this morning. A lot of Chinese tech names on the list. JD, Pinduoduo, Baidu as well. We're going to get the opening bell in just over five minutes. Don't go anywhere. 
Bitcoin falling below 40K as cryptocurrencies give back much of yesterday's gains, which, as we know, were sparked in part by the president's executive order on digital assets uh, industry. Mike has sort of had its view about what could have been coming down the pike. And although this wasn't all that granular, did get a nice bounce uh, yesterday. Also, Treasury this morning saying they're going to be issuing uh, some education initiatives and uh, the, the take with some pieces on firms like Tudor Jones uh, yeah. offering more in crypto uh, tools. Yeah, that there is basically an investment boom uh, among hedge funds. Uh, you know, that's maybe a lagging indicator of where the, where the price has been. Um, and even yesterday's bounce, it seemed like a little bit of relief that there wasn't anything specific to worry about in the executive order. On the other hand, it only rallied up to levels that, you know, people were holding with, hoping would hold on the downside not that long ago. So it remains a risk appetite tell, one of the better ones on a day-to-day -day basis. And it uh, looks like it's going to be in sync with, uh, with the decline in the NASDAQ. You know, this morning, you know, I think it was hoping for more muted moves. You keep today's range in, in crypto and in equities maybe within yesterday's range as a start. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the twitchy market is, is not really going to change. You have the two-year note yield racing higher over 1.7 again. Market feels like the Fed's going to have no choice but to get aggressive here. Right. Uh, some discussion about the yield curve, which has not moved as much as you might expect. Uh, some argue that if the banks are going to hold yesterday's rally, you would have to. You would want it, want it to. I mean, you could argue about which yield curve matters more for their earnings, uh, you know, if it's the really, you know, 30 day to five year, whatever it is. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's sort of a challenge that it's, it, the yield curve is compressing at a time when the Fed is just about to start hiking. It's an, been an incredible accelerated cycle in every respect. And I think that was really the case even before we got into Ukraine. We, we kind of tipped into late cycle before the Fed even started hiking. We're going to find out a lot more next week, of course. Let's get to the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange. At the big board, it is Murphy USA, operator of gas stations and convenience stores. At the NASDAQ, it is psychedelic therapy provider, Field Trip Health. As we watch Red fill in and, and keep our eye on Mike on the Bix, which um, has spent seven days now above 30. Uh, this spoke with a good piece on the handful of examples we have where it's done that um, three months, six months, 12 months afterwards, S&P's up 80% of the time. Yeah, so that's that's usually the way these studies go. When you look at any indicator of extreme short-term stress in the market, and that's how, the case with the level of the VIX, is the case with the setup in terms of VIX futures uh, pricing and all the rest of it. It's, yeah, that's that happens because the market is on unsteady ground and it's working through something very difficult and there's lots of liquidation happening and you never know when that's gonna end. So near term, it's dicey. You know, odds of the market being higher 80% of the time, six and 12 months in the future, that seems pretty comforting. I think on a random sample, you're up 60% of the time, you know, six and 12 months out. So it's a little bit of an edge, uh, but usually it just tells you this is kind of the readings that you get in the midst of, uh, of a severe market pullback. You know, if you want to look at the sentiment surveys, they're about as bearish as it gets. Today, the AAII retail investor survey, that's been that way for a couple of weeks right now, 45% bears, 24% bulls. That's, that's about as, as pessimistic as you'll see. The problem is that in itself doesn't tell you how much more there is to be sold because we came into this year with retail and with uh, institutions running pretty heavy equity exposures. And it's been whittled down through multiple compression in the market, not really yet through earnings estimates uh, being revised lower. Maybe that's a silver lining or maybe that's another shoe to drop.
Uh, guys, another story we, of course, are continuing to watch closely is the number of corporations. As you take a look at the real-time exchange back at our headquarters, of course, a lot more red on the board. The number of corporations that are withdrawing from the Russian market. Uh, Going to make Jeff Sonnenfeld smile, the Yale management uh, uh, professor who's been keeping track of this, been on our air as well, talking about it. Goldman Sachs this morning uh, in the financial services industry. Again, this is no surprise. And, the level of business Goldman did in Russia is de minimis. 20, 25 million in investment banking revenues, maybe. I think 80 to 100 people is what we're talking about. Some have already left, but you can read the statement along with me. Uh, winding down their business and compliance with regulatory licensing requirements. And they say supporting their clients around the globe and everything else you'd expect them to do. Uh, but uh, they're not alone uh, as we continue to see just any number of companies that are in a position to do so, even taking pain, uh, of course, when it does come to actually having significant presence in the country. Of course, McDonald's earlier this week, perhaps the most significant amongst those companies, Carl, that may have made that somewhat painful choice in part also continuing to pay their people uh, is McDonald's, 62,000 employees. Yep, uh, we got at least one downgrade this morning of MCD from North Coast. But uh, David's right, a uh, handful of companies just yesterday, CAT, and Hitachi, uh, some industrials in there, 3M and Deer. Uh, Morningstar is going to take them off of some uh, fixed income indices. Western Union, uh, Honeywell, yeah. uh, aviation services between Boeing, Honeywell, um, and GE. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens to their aviation industry. Right. A lot of talk that, you know, within months, I mean, maybe, that there's really not going to be uh, a way for, for the aviation industry to, to go ahead without that kind of service and, uh, and maintenance. And, you know, uh, obviously we'll see. It's, it's almost, you know, with the exception of McDonald's, it's, it's usually around the edges. I think GE said maybe it's 2% of revenue, uh, Russia. We're going to hear about yes. you know, GE later. GE has an investor day as well today. Yeah, exactly. And t I mean, 2% is not nothing, right, when, you, when you're talking about no. trying, to, trying to squeeze out top-line growth for mature businesses. So yeah. well, The um, other thing that came up in the press briefing yesterday is what happens if they follow through on their threat to start seizing some assets of U.S. corporates. Yeah. If the, obviously, the relationship is completely deteriorated. Uh, you begin to think about things that were unthinkable the, before. The nationalization yeah. of what assets are left, yeah, to some extent, that is a possibility. Of course, remember, a lot of these companies are earning their uh, income in rubles, right. which doesn't really help them anyway because, of course, it's fallen so dramatically. Guys, you know, we, we don't talk about it that often as well, though. Remember, the Russians supposedly had a, a war chest, so to speak, the reserves of $630 billion, but you know, some of the extraordinary things that have been done uh, uh, include the inability of the Russians to access that money. The mechanisms by which are somewhat complex in terms of not allowing them to actually access the foreign exchange markets to, to support the ruble because right. they won't allow them to actually exchange. Um, but fascinating that this has been done. Not sure what the implications are, but this has come up in a number of conversations for others. If you're the Chinese and you have a trillion dollars worth of treasuries as part of your reserves, do you think about things a bit differently, perhaps, right. um, in the future? I mean, it's I, held at the New York Fed or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right, yeah. Exactly. and I, I, I don't know the answer. Still trying to even understand exactly by which the mechanism is the U.S. is preventing the Russians from using so much of that reserves. But nonetheless, it is a question. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it seems as if it's just more atomization of the, of the yes. you know, of the global financial system and maybe more local reserves or diversifying your reserve. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll be talking about the spillover effects for a little while, just in terms of how people decide to have an insurance policy against something like this, um, you know, happening. And, you know, I mean, obviously the U.S. is in a unique position to be able to impose these types of restrictions with the U.S. dollar. 
being the, the main reserve currency, but you know, we'll see if that if that changes over time. Um, was going to just point out that after yesterday's kind of reversion day, right, where you had the travel stocks uh, outperforming and everything that was most hard hit was leading the rally. You have kind of back to form here. You have defense stocks, energy, fertilizer shares uh, leading the S&P 500. So it's essentially gone uh, back. The, the pendulum swings, although Amazon uh, is the, uh, the leading performer in the S&P 500 at the open, up three and a half percent. It's a more muted uh, pop than we got at the first announcement last night uh, on the 24-1 stock split in the buyback. Uh, and, of course, it's worth remembering that, you know, the, the high in this stock is over 3700 Right. So you still have lost a quarter of your value uh, from the peak, and it has not acted well for the last year and a half. Well, the, the, we mentioned the Wells uh, note this morning. Their target's still 4250 Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, 100 uh, percent unanimity of buy ratings on the sell side still for Amazon. And that's just I think that's just the vestige of it just being you can't fight the stock. It's going to go up in your face if you get negative. And, you know, maybe somebody has to capitulate on that front. Uh, it's another one of those days. Yesterday, financials were strong and energy was weak. Yeah. And as you might imagine, it's reversed, uh, keeping an eye on Exxon and Chevron, both of which are up. We were talking with our guests earlier in the show about both those companies, what's going to be an enormous amount of potential excess uh, cash flow, at, uh, at excess, uh, let's just say very large amounts of cash flow, yeah. uh, which could result in significant return of capital. Uh, by those companies. But the banks, uh, Mike, also uh, lower after a, a brief respite yesterday from what's been a, a drubbing so far this year. J.P. Morgan itself down over 17 uh, percent is uh, the worst performer of the big banks. Wells Fargo is still in, in the green, actually, for the year. Yeah. Uh, Wells has managed to hang on. Um, you know, the, the investment banks, uh, if you just look at some of that action, they've given up uh, a lot. I mean, capital markets, uh, bond markets doing fine, uh, not a lot of issuance. Trading, in theory, there's going to be winners and losers because this volatility is amazing. But I keep pointing to this low liquidity, which means a low willingness of middlemen to step in. And that's, uh, that shows you that people are much more focused on, uh, on the risk of the downside uh, when, it, when it comes to just these daily uh, market moves for now. And one final thing. I mean, the S&P 500, 42.30. Right. Let's keep in mind the January 24th low is 42.22. We spent a lot of time hanging around uh, in this area. So, you know, that's the big debate. Does the market really give you that much time to buy the low or, you know, does that mean that we have some kind of real fundamental uh, stickiness to the support or, uh, you know, is it is it just a shelf that we fall off of? Mike, you mentioned uh, the bond market and the corporate bond market. J.P. Morgan's going to have some significant fees coming its way. That was one heck of a bond deal they did for uh, what is going to be Warner Discovery, 30 billion, triple B minus, the largest actually uh, ever done at that uh, that level of the uh, of investment grade, but that credit uh, rating, um, and they got it done easily. Uh, there was over 100 billion uh, order book, uh, at least peaked demand, and over 100 billion, I'm told, by those who constructed the deal. It got priced. Uh, we don't need to go through all the different tranches. What some interesting parts of it, though, um, the long end of the curve. Uh, they actually um, did better in a way uh, and than they perhaps had anticipated. And there was even more demand at the long end of the curve, I'm told, than at the short end. One would imagine, given inflation and everything else, you might see more of an effect on the short end. Uh, that was not the case. I'm told they could have gone up perhaps as much as another $10 billion in, uh, in, in amount if they wanted to without really affecting rate very significantly. So that does give you a sense as to the health of the corporate bond market right now. Again, this is the low end of investment grade. The company's going to be four and a half times levered. 
But there is an expectation that it is going to delever very quickly. Of course, this debt being taken on in part to pay AT&T. Uh, and remember, then the spin is going to be forthcoming very soon. In fact, the vote is, is Friday, uh, early April, which I've been telling people a long time. Early April, this thing's closing. That gives you sense in terms of where this ranks for the largest bond issuances of all time. And again, it's all across the, the curve, as you might expect, uh, you know, starting with notes due in 2024 and ending with notes due in 2062, yeah. uh, to give you some sense. But uh, 40 years. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there, a small, small amount, but there's 40-year sure. paper. 20-year, $7 billion, uh, and they got it done at 5.14 uh, as well. You know, um, this was seen as perhaps a test of the bond market. Obviously, it uh, passed with flying colors. There was a backup in, in rates to a certain extent as a result of the crisis, perhaps as much as 20 basis points. But don't cry for discovery. I'm told, by the way, they put a hedge on last fall. They're up a billion dollars on their hedge. So that's going to more than pay for any interest, any increased interest costs as a result of any backup in rates. Yeah. So that's actually worked out quite well for them. Kudos to the Treasury operations at Discovery for doing that and making a billion bucks uh, or perhaps more. Um, the question, though, does still become, Mike, and I know you do follow this sometimes because it bleeds into the stock yeah. market, high yield. And I yeah. am told um, because you can get a bit of a higher rate now in investment grade, high yield is suffering a bit. So yes. those who might have looked at the double B now willing to go up to triple and say, hey, I can get the same yield that I might have a few months ago uh, with obviously less risk. Exactly. Uh, and so I am told weaker credits and high yield right now are not getting done because why, why not stay in triple B land if it's more or less the same yield that you were able to get from, from, uh, from the likes of junk right. not that long ago. But this is a big success for the underwriters and for Discovery overall. One of the, you know, I mean, it's essentially a new issuer, right? I mean, sometimes that's, a, that's something that stokes demand. You have fixed income investors that want to capture that. Uh, and also even the maturities. I mean, they, want, they know what the demand is going to be at each at each yes. uh, maturity. And so it's not a surprise it got done, but it is bullish because Triple B is kind of the blended... Uh, credit rating for equity issuers, right? So it seems like the Fed cares a lot about it. The Fed looks a lot at triple B spread. And this is triple so, B minus, yeah. Yeah, triple yeah. B minus. So, sp- so it's compressed, uh, you know, a little bit, and it's 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 a net bullish thing. Over 500 investors participated in this. Again, fourth largest bond offering of all time, and the largest at that triple B minus level. Yeah. Um, and then you take a look at the 10-year note, still below two percent. Yeah. And AT&T and Discovery. Woohoo! <laughs> AT&T, man. Oh, Look, default well. rates remain very, very low uh, yes. across the board. Yes. So, it, you know, that's not to me. The credit markets have not been particularly low. well. It, it's the point here. A high yeah. yield may be at the margin, certainly weaker yes. credits, but not investment rate. And they've been more just kind of reacting to equities than, than being lead uh, in driving equities lower, at least so far. Uh, there are a handful of smaller uh, corporate stories. Uh, Peloton, interesting piece in the journal about uh, potentially testing a new pricing structure in which you would get the bike and the subscription, Mike, on a monthly basis. They're going to test it in Texas, uh, Minnesota, Colorado, somewhere in the range of 60 to $100, um, as we see McCarthy try to see what the market's going to hold and where, where yeah. they can go from here. Razor and blades, yeah. There you go. Strategy, essentially. Uh, along with uh, Netflix, got a price hike in the U.K. There's still running commentary about Disney's reversal regarding the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. Uh, but for the time being, the, the macro story is the only story. Dow's down 350. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, you're not going to get the Dow go up just because Chevron's up. Not when you have Microsoft, Intel, Salesforce. 
uh, Apple, all uh, 120 of the down points are just four or five of the tech stocks. And then you got J.P. Morgan uh, and Goldman Sachs down is another 60 points. You know, you got 200 of the points for six or seven big tech or financial names. Look at the sectors today. Uh, yes, you got energy up, so you got the Halliburtons and Schlumberger and Chevron up, but that's not offsetting uh, what we're seeing on the downside. Metals are also doing a little bit better uh, overall. We're seeing uh, tech, though. Most of the big tech names are down. Semis are weak uh, as well. Banks marginally weak, as you see, J.P. Morgan uh, and Goldman weighing on the Dow. Uh, and industrial is a little bit weaker as the airlines, once again, uh, showing signs of decline. You can't trade this market. I mean, it's really just impossible to trade it because of the intraday price swing. So the issues, we know the issues. They're very obvious here. We need evidence that inflation is peaking out. And you can't find that kind of evidence during a war on top of everything else that we're dealing with. So that's the fundamental problem. We don't have an answer to this question. To this question. We were dealing with reflation before. Now we're having to deal with the, the possible issue of stagflation. So look what this does to the market and look how this changes the market dynamics. Remember what we've been dealing with for the last 10 or 12 years, low inflation, low commodity prices, low gold, and high stock returns. We are now in the exact opposite situation. We're in high inflation, high commodity prices, higher gold, and lower stock returns. Everything has been inverted, and the market's having a hard time figuring out what the right levels should be, and for good reason. There is not an obvious, clear answer. What the market's doing is correcting. A global correction uh, is going on here. Europe uh, is down 20% because that's bearing the brunt of the, of the growth slowdown reflected in the Ukrainian crisis. But China's been in a slow-motion meltdown uh, since the early part of last year. It's down almost 40% from its highs, the broader indexes, the broader China indexes, with the S&P 500 down only 11%. So comparatively, I know we, there was a lot of internal damage, but comparatively on the broad U.S. market, uh, we're having the least of the damage. Uh, Amazon had uh, interesting announcements on buybacks. Uh, I just want to point out something. It's not about buybacks. It's about share count reduction. It's about in, it's about increasing earnings per share because the share count reduction increases earnings per share. Amazon is the opposite of a buyback monster. They have been consistently increasing their share count since they went public in 1997. Here you see from 286 million shares uh, in 98 to 508 million here today. It's nice that they're having a buyback announcement. Let's see if it actually results in a share count reduction, which is what we want to see. We'll see. Remember, this is a giant hamster wheel with a lot of these companies. Buybacks, and then at the same time, they give more options out to the executives on the back end. We also have, of course, a 20 for one stock split. This is very interesting. This has been studied for decades. Stock splits do not create any value. It's the same valuation. In theory, it shouldn't matter at all. And yet, the evidence is it does. It does lead to higher prices for companies that have split stocks. Savita Subramanian mentioned this this morning, but this research is decades old. Companies that are split stock uh, a year later generally are 25% higher. This goes back to 1980. The S&P 500 average is 9.1%. There does seem to be a difference. Why, Carl? Well, it's probably because these are companies that were doing the stock splits already have momentum behind them. So there is a little bit of psychology here, a little bit of behavioral economics uh, that are going on. But it is rather startling that you'd think at one point all the news would be in. That would be the top of the market when the stock split was announced. But it's not. People continue to buy because, Carl, 
new people are dragged in on the announcement of the stock split. So it's one of those, this is one of the reasons that behavioral economists are employed so well to explain this kind of thing when it doesn't really make any fundamental sense. Carl, back to you. Yeah, uh, Schiller would have a field day yes, with this one exactly. today. Uh, Bob, thank you. Uh, it's time for the bond report as we go to break. Take a look at how treasuries are faring uh, in the wake of CPI, as we mentioned earlier, uh, up eight tenths, up seven, nine year on year, fastest since 82. You got the 10 year just a shade below two, which is going to be pretty much the highest level since uh, about February 25th. We'll be right back. NASDAQ 100 heat map for a moment there. We had only three components in the green. Uh, CrowdStrike, Amazon, Netflix. That's broadened out a bit to include Marriott and Activision Blizzard. Uh, but clearly severe negative breath this morning as the Dow's down 314. We'll be back in just a moment. Disney CEO Bob Chapek weighing in on that Florida bill that restricts LGBTQ topics in schools. Julia Borston now joins us and she has the details for us. Julia. Well, David, at Disney's annual shareholder meeting, CEO Bob Chapek responded to the criticism for failing to come out in opposition to that so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. Chapek saying that they chose to not take a public position because they thought it would be more effective to work behind the scenes with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Take a listen. I called Governor DeSantis this morning to express our disappointment and concern that if legislation becomes law, it could be used to unfairly target gay, lesbian, non-binary, and transgender kids and families. The governor heard our concerns and agreed to meet with me and LGBTQ plus members of our senior team in Florida to discuss ways to address them. Chapek also said Disney is signing a human rights campaign petition against such bills that are being proposed across the country and is also donating $5 million to work to protect the LGBTQ plus community. Now, though the rest of the meeting went pretty much as expected, shareholders did approve one proposal that Disney opposed. 59% of shareholders voting in favor of a report to disclose gender and racial pay equity data. A Disney spokesperson telling us in response to that, quote, we appreciate our shareholders' view on this important issue and the board accepts the results of today's vote. The company is committed to pay equity and we will continue our ongoing work on this front, including addressing interest in greater transparency around our efforts. Now, shares ended yesterday about 1.5% higher, but today Disney shares are down about 1% this morning. Guys? Hey, Julia, yesterday there were some stories about Pixar's LGBTQ employees saying Disney censors some same-sex affection. Uh, you know, it, it struck me as interesting. Uh, I don't know if it puts any pressure on Mr. Chapek or if there's any more to that part of the story, but I'm curious. Well, I don't have any more on that particular part of the story, but I do think it's worth noting, David, that this is a key test for Chapek in terms of how he addresses these very complicated uh, and important to many people, social and cultural issues. I mean, his predecessor, Bob Iger, did over the course of his career start to take more and more of a public stand on these issues, speaking out on, on issues such as, as gun control. And this is really a, a, a key opportunity here for Chapek to, to really set the stage for how he's going to address these issues going forward. Bob Iger tweeted about this issue, uh, about the Don't Say Gay bill back in February, and this was really the first time that we heard Chapek talk about it, Carl. 
Yeah, a lot of people going back to Iger's tweet saying, I'm with the president on this one. Uh, Julia, thank you. Uh, Julia Borston watching Disney today. Uh, we are off the lows. Dow session opening low was about 403 to the downside. Currently shaved that almost about in half. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.